Welcome to Transforming the College Classroom. This is a podcast for anyone who's interested in taking up teaching and learning in higher education from a social justice-informed perspective in ways that are centered on a deep commitment to teaching all students. My name is Nana Osei-Kofi. I'm director of the Difference, Power, and Discrimination Program at Oregon State University, and I'm also associate professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies. I'm Callie Furman. I'm a postdoctoral scholar with the Difference, Power, and Discrimination Program. And I'm Bradley Boovey, associate professor in the School of Language, Culture, and Society at Oregon State and co-facilitator with Nana of the DPD Summer Academy, where we work with faculty who are developing and teaching DPD courses. We're recording this at Oregon State University in Corvallis, Oregon, located within the traditional homelands of the Marys River or Ampanefu Band of Kalapuya. Following the Willamette Valley Treaty of 1855, Kalapuya people were forcibly removed to reservations in Western Oregon. Today, living descendants of these people are a part of the Confederated Tribes of Grand Ronde Community of Oregon and the Confederated Tribes of the Siletz Indians. And today we're here with Dr. Callie Furman. Uh, Callie is uh, one of the co-editors of the volume, of course, and the author of the first chapter titled Student Activism and Institutional Change, A History of the Difference, Power, and Discrimination Program. Nana. Yeah, Callie, why don't you start by telling our listeners a little bit about your chapter? Yeah, absolutely. So my chapter focuses on talking about the early history of the Difference, Power, and Discrimination Program and how it was sort of started and some early sort of trials and tribulations at the institution. Um, And I really focus on situating that story within the specific context of the state of Oregon and Oregon State University as predominantly white spaces and institutions, and really thinking about the broader history of student activism at Oregon State University, particularly in response to racism and other forms of bias incidents. So the Difference, Power, and Discrimination Program was originally created as a result of student activism in the early 1990s. And so I sort of talk about how that builds into a broader pattern Mm -hmm. of student activism and institutional responses to sort of student demands for change Mm -hmm. at the institution. And so looking at sort of the specific and unique history of DPD, but also how it fits into sort of a broader pattern in the terms of institutional memory and how sort of institutional responses take place to student demands on Mm -hmm. campus. And so it's sort of looking at this context and the broader history that Oregon State's a part of, and then also talking specifically about the origins of the program. Mm -hmm. And I tell that story by using archival materials from our Special Collections and Archives Research Center here on campus in the Valley Library. Um, And so really using primary sources Mm -hmm. and the documents that we have about those sort of origins to tell that story. That's fantastic. And I, I really appreciate what you said about um, the way that you, you look at it in terms of themes um, that are situated within a larger context, because it's, um, I mean, I think we could look at this chapter and say, oh, well, I'm not at Oregon State, so it has nothing to do with me, or I don't live in the state of Oregon. So, you know, that history is not particularly interesting to me. But what mm-hmm. I'm hearing you say, if I'm hearing you correctly, is that, you know, it, probably doesn't matter what institution we're at, these institutions have similar histories, these states have similar histories, and we can see these themes throughout. Does that yeah. capture? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's one of the like things that I want folks to take away from reading this chapter is not just sort of learning about the history of DPD, but also 
asking for folks to think about what is their own institutional histories, right? How have their institutions been shaped by policies, by practices? What are legacies of student activism on all of our different campuses? How are sort of the contexts in which we teach and we live and we work informed by these broader events and these broader sort of mechanisms and processes that happen, which while there will be unique situations in every institution, there's also sort of themes and connections and how those things function. And so I think there's a lot of value in both knowing our own specific context, as well as how it fits into sort of broader patterns and connections as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm interested, you know, as, as you think back to the work that you did for the chapter and, and um, your research, I'm interested in thinking through with you, what do you think changes when we look at the history mm-hmm. of institutions from a student activist perspective, right? Yeah. So you mentioned, you know, um, you know, our archives are filled with policies, they're filled with emails from faculty mm-hmm. um, and other correspondence between faculty and administration about setting up the DPD program. Mm-hmm. What do you think, like, what does it add to our story, right? Yeah. Um, what is it, how does it challenge us to, to, to think about institutions of higher ed differently mm-hmm. when we take student activism as the entry point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's such a good question, Bradley. Um, I mean, I think a few sort of different things around that. One is I think because students sort of move in and out of the institution relatively quickly, in the mm-hmm. grand scheme of a life of an institution, right? Typical undergraduate student is here for four to five years, grad students two to six years, maybe, right? And so that's relatively high turnover, whereas staff and faculty will often be here for decades, right? Particularly tenured faculty. And so I think when we look at the histories of institutions or institutional memory, a lot of times it's faculty and staff that are sort of centered in mm-hmm. terms of like yeah. how we think about what changes an institution. It's people who, you know, sort of have some of those longer standing sort of stature, status, time at the institution. But when we focus on student activism, I think that it allows us to sort of think about contemporary issues Mm -hmm. and how those actually sort of cause change in the institution Mm -hmm. rather than sort of long-term change, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so something that I really noticed in doing this research and in my work with students, I used to work in student affairs. So I worked with undergraduate students on this campus and on others, and particularly here where there is such a student activist presence, is students didn't know the history of previous student actions, right? They might know a bit here or there, like they might know how our cultural resource centers came to exist, right? And the student activism had something to do with that, but they don't necessarily know all of the stories about how those things changed. And so what you see in some of the history of these student movements movements is patterns repeating themselves. And so I think when you zoom out and look at student activism as an entry point, you can sort of see those waves over time and how they're connected, but not necessarily looked at in connection because those groups of students move in and out of the institution relatively quickly. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally. And and so, no, I just wanted just a quick follow-up. So then do you see is your chapter potentially then a resource for student activists? Mm. Like, is I think it, something it could like be. They could, they could use to either yeah. here or at other institutions, right? Yeah. To kind of get a sense of those patterns and maybe also learn strategies, like learn mm-hmm. what has been effective for students and yeah. in the past. Yeah, I certainly, I certainly think so, for sure. Because I think, you know, it's easy to be like, in the moment of something, be like, we're going to do these things. But I think it's really helpful to think what has been effective in the past and how has it moved and what can we learn from those? And then also, what do we have new to offer, right, in terms of student action? And so I certainly think it could be, or I would hope it would be. Yeah, Yeah. I, I just, I also just appreciate in what you're saying, what a powerful reminder this is of the role of student and student activists in creating and shaping change, Mm -hmm. um, progressive, radical um, Mm -hmm. change in U.S. higher education. Yeah. I I feel like a lot of times we 
we forget, mm-hmm. you know, that it's actually uh, the role of students mm-hmm. in uh, demanding and pushing for changes that I think a lot otherwise would never have happened. Yeah, so, absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. They're worth sort of remembering and acknowledging. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. sort of connected to that and something that I talk about in my chapter is the coalition that formed between students, staff and faculty and getting the DPD program created. So students created this initial push and demand for the university to create mm-hmm. a curriculum that would deal with sort of like the origins of racism and discrimination that all students would have to learn about. And then staff and faculty were tasked with the logistics of actually creating that. And in that process, the sort of team of staff and faculty that created the structure of what became DPD, they really, really centered what the students were asking for as they did that. Like it's apparent in the meeting notes and the memos that I read through and doing the research for this chapter that they didn't forget about those students when they were doing that process, that they engaged with them, that they kept coming back to what did students really mean when they asked us for this and how can we create that and live into that in like a meaningful way that will last at the institution. And so I think the coalition that's possible too, when we take that student activism seriously and those requests seriously, and then leverage the institutional positions that faculty and staff have to continue to move that forward beyond when the students are here. Yeah, that's excellent. Excellent. I'm always interested in why folks do the work they do and, and, you know, sort of what that process is. And you shared a little bit about coming out of student affairs and working with students. So it it seems like there's a natural connection there with that. What I'm really curious about, because you spend so much time in the archives, is there anything that surprised you or any, something you found that you just didn't expect that you were able to share? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm a huge history nerd, so it was like so much fun to just get to spend an entire month digging through the archives. I was supported by the Resident Fellows Program um, by the Special Collections and Archives Research Center. So I spent a whole month just digging through the archives. And there were so many interesting things, right? And there was a lot of things in there that I didn't necessarily expect, like printed copies of emails from like the 90s, right? Between faculty emailing each other. So there's just a lot of stories in there that I wasn't, you know, necessarily expecting to have that level of sort of personal narrative detail that was there, which was great. And I mean, I think really I was just pleased at how much of an in-depth story I could find about the origins of the program, right? And so I think just being able to see, especially so I look, so we have a special like DPD collection that's categorized like everything DPD. And then there's other collections that I looked at as well, like the student newspaper, there's copies of every student newspaper in our archives. And so I read through those. And so just seeing some of like the firsthand like student reporting of what was happening when the program was created and then when the program's funding was almost cut in the late 90s, right? Like, so being able to like really see those firsthand accounts, which you always hope to find in an archive, but you never know what you're actually going to find until you get in there, right? Because there are often gaps in archives because of people didn't think to save something or you know what I mean? Like some of those kinds of things. And so I think that that was really, really great to see. Um, And then I think Something else that I found myself thinking about a lot, particularly as I was reading the student newspapers, was like how many parallels there were between what was going on in the 1990s with what is happening now, right? And like, I like constantly found myself being like, is now the 1990s, right? Like there were just so many similarities in terms of sort of like what the op-ed pieces are, like what issues were people concerned about? There were budget constraints. People were questioning, should we be doing diversity education? What's the point of this, right? Like, and I think we see those same questions now around issues of social justice, around sort of like the paranoia around critical race theory that we're seeing today. Right. And so there was just like a lot of parallels between all the things that were happening 
in the 90s when the program was created that are still going on right now that are sort of unresolved questions. And certainly things have changed and like some of those elements, but in a lot of ways they haven't. There are so many, so many similarities. And so that was really, really powerful to sort of see and think about in my research um, as well. Yeah, I really love, I, I mean, yeah, we've talked a lot about archives. I also <laughs> love to work in archives and just hearing you kind of speak to the the kind of ways in which archives, both both in what is present and what the gaps are, mm-hmm. right, can become a kind of source of radical change, right? Mm-hmm. They can become a source of activism, right? Yeah. Um, and change in the institution. And I love that you, in the chapter, you really trace that history at OSU through the archives, right? And through interviews, right? Because mm-hmm. you also did interviews as another part, perhaps not as much in the chapter, but as another part of your research. Right yeah. So, so I wrote this chapter. Um, it's part of my dissertation that I wrote in women, gender and sexuality mm-hmm. studies. I did a case study of the difference, power and discrimination as my dissertation project. And mm-hmm. so part of that was this chapter that I wrote looking at the institutional sort of history of DPD. And then I also did interviews with faculty members yeah. who've gone through the faculty development program and who teach DPD. Yeah. And so it was interesting to think of all of those things like together and in relationship to each other for yeah. sure. Yeah, well so, so yeah, just thinking I guess about how about the past, right? And what what um how we can kind of also leverage that in mm-hmm. thinking about activism mm-hmm. in the present. And I think that also just in terms of kind of our podcast here, right? That also yeah. connects really well to the other two chapters in the first section mm-hmm. of the book. Yeah. And I think also to Marisa Chappelle and Linda Richards chapter at the mm-hmm. end of the book, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's a you really in the chapter you really pull together a lot of themes that run throughout the book um, in terms of collaboration and, and working with archival materials. So, yeah, 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 absolutely. Yeah, I think I mean, those are wonderful ideas that readers can take up in terms of thinking about how they want to work in their own classrooms mm-hmm. yeah. and maybe using archives. And also, I think that part of it is speaks to the why it's so powerful to work with students on current issues and allowing them to do their own research in terms of the history to know to understand issues deeply to understand mm-hmm. where they come from and how they've moved through processes and procedures mm-hmm. over time what i'm thinking about there's a question in this <laughs> <laughs> what i'm thinking about is that seems like it's a it's a specific example that has to do with the way you put together the chapter and that's something that let's say a reader from X university somewhere in the country reading this can take away from that and use. I'm wondering, are there other things that sort of, if you were looking at this as sort of the optimal outcome from somebody reading your chapter, mm-hmm. what what do you want people to take away from it? What do you want them to engage with specifically when it comes to curriculum transformation as a result of reading your chapter? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think for me, such an important part of curriculum transformation that's sort of aiming to do that through a social justice lens, social justice perspectives, and sort of that service or that goal, I think the importance of knowing that it's not just about what happens inside our classroom and the like literal sort of curriculum that you're putting together in terms of your text, your assignments, right? But it's also about understanding the context in which that curriculum is happening and that there are a lot of connections that can be made within sort of your own institution, your own context that is important to incorporate into your teaching, sort of what are the contemporary issues that students are concerned about? How do they connect to what you're doing in your classroom? How do they impact what you're doing in your classroom with your curriculum? And then how sort of no matter where you teach, how does the institutional history impact what you're teaching and how and why, right? So whether you're in sort of like a critical field, like we're all in women, gender and sexuality studies, right? Or in any area that you're teaching, what does the institutional legacy mean for 
what you're teaching and how, right? Like at Oregon State, we have some faculty that do really great work around the history of science, right? And engaging with some of the really difficult histories about eugenics being taught at the institution, right? And so how does that impact what you're teaching now, right? And so I think thinking about curriculum transformation as not just a sole project about like what's in your syllabus, but it's about a much broader context and perspective than simply what you're putting on that document that you're giving to your students, right? Thank you, Callie. Thank you for everything that you shared with us. I think there are a lot of wonderful ideas that I hope folks around the country will take up and and work with in their own classrooms and um, in their own institutions. So we appreciate your yeah. time. Thanks so much, Callie. Yeah, thank you both. It's always fun to talk about your work. So yay. <laughs> And in our next episode, we'll be talking with Jenny Myers, whose chapter is on online education from a social justice perspective. And the course comes out of Jenny's experience in the sustainability studies program. So it should be a really interesting conversation. We'd like to thank Orange Media Network and their podcast director, Jen Durston. This podcast is sponsored by the Difference Power and Discrimination Program. More information on the DPD program, our book, and the transcripts for this podcast are available at dpd.oregonstate.edu. Listen to us on any of your preferred podcast platforms. Continuous learning and growth is critical to educators with deep commitments to fostering critical consciousness through their teaching. Join the conversation.